Welcome to Security Insights. I am your host, Gunnar Peterson. I work at Forder, which is a trust platform for digital commerce. I thought it would be a good idea to get some other voices in the security and identity space in for a chat once in a while. It's always nice to have a, a mind share together and hear what other problems uh, people are tackling, how they're doing it. And without further ado, very excited for today's guest, Vittorio Pertocci. Vittorio is a principal architect at Auth0. He's the host of the Identity Unlocked podcast. Uh, before Auth0, Vittorio had a lengthy career at Microsoft, where he worked with Fortune 100 and Global 100 companies, including working on Microsoft's Azure Active Directory team as principal program manager, focusing on the developer experience, which one of the topics I want to get to today. Uh, Vittorio has also written several books on identity. I, I vividly recall reading Understanding Windows Card Space on a long airplane trip on a Kindle, and it was one of the most virtual feelings I've ever had in my life of uh, going across the clouds, reading about virtual identity um, it, it, on, a, on a little device. It was amazing. Um, so so that thank you for that. I know you've written several other books as well. And Vittorio contributed to the inception of one of the most interesting fundamental shifts in access control today at Microsoft, which was the claims-based access control platform, uh, which comes under various sales under various flags, the Windows Identity Foundation, ADFS, uh, and, a, and a whole list of other types of uh, identity middleware. So if you're in the identity middleware business, you certainly know Vittorio. If you use computers, you're using his work. He's a well-known speaker and educator. When I told one of our teammates here that I was having you as a as a podcast guest, she she's ex-Microsoft and she said, oh, he was the best trainer we ever had at Microsoft. I always get excited when Vittorio is a teacher. So uh, without nice. further ado, great to have you here today, Vittorio. Thank you. You managed to get some color on my face, <laughs> which uh, these days is not very colorful. So thank you. <laughs> Well, we go back a little ways. Uh, I think it's fair to say to the to sort of the earlier days in identity when the game was really about. I think it's fair to say adoption and trying to get, uh, trying to in your case build those uh, interesting technologies into Windows products and uh, and other products on the web. Um, but also to get uh, you know customers to deploy them and maximize them in, in in real life, and it feels like in the early days when when you and I first uh, met at, at places like Identiverse and Cloud Identity Summit and places like that, it was it was chasing after adoption. It was saying you know SAML is coming, OAuth is coming, OpenID Connect is coming. All of these things are coming. Here's the value proposition. Um, I don't know if we're we're done yet on all of those things, but we're significantly farther than we than we were. And it feels to me a little bit like we're the dog that caught the car. We're the dog that was, you know, 10 years ago was chasing the car up and down our street, barking at it. Now we've caught the car and it's like, what do we do with it? Um, and I, I think the questions I wanted to get to today uh, is, you know, what does that mean that we have achieved reasonably good adoption um, what does it mean to developers? What does it mean to users? And in, in my little world of information security, what, is it, what do you think it means in terms of information security and, and protecting systems? 
Um, so those are the things I wanted to get to today. I think your, your perspectives on all of these are, is going to be absolutely fascinating. Uh, starting with the first one, though, like what, where do you see the starting point that we have today with with really impressive building blocks like Op OpenID Connect and OAuth? What does that mean to a developer experience? Do you feel like developers uh, do they need to be identity experts? Do they do they need to understand identity the same way uh, somebody at Identiverse would, or or are these at the point where it's like point click and go? Or I remember in the early days of WS security, one of the goals was a checkbox for for web services security. I don't think we're at a checkbox. I don't know if we want developers to be complete protocol experts, but where where are we in between those two things? So much. Uh so much stuff on this plate is over, overflowing. Um, first, I absolutely love your analogy of like the dog that chased the car and says, and now what? And in so many things, we still have a long way to go. But for others, we actually did get where we wanted to get. And to answer the, your, your question, I have to zoom out a bit and then I'll zoom back in. And I think that, uh, what happened when uh, you and I started in the space was that uh, if you were very close to the matter, it was pretty clear that identity was uh, one of the capabilities, like this was the service-oriented days, one of the fundamental capabilities that deserved to be factored out of the various places where it was being uh, implemented, like applications and similar, or even better, like network level, the operating system, and operate it as its own capability that could be reused across the board. And this wasn't an easy uh, thing to sell to people because uh, uh, people were used to identity just coming from the air around them, especially developers. And like whenever they needed identity, they just reached out and Kerberos already did everything for them. And so they didn't, weren't even aware of this. And it was a good thing. Because like, uh, uh, unless there is some optionality, something that is actionable, developers shouldn't be burdened is, uh, with details, which is a forward answer to the question, but we're not there yet. But then this magical thing happened. Uh, the cloud, like uh, people started, like before the need for extracting identity was uh, engineering agility. So SharePoint didn't want to deal with identity because it's complicated and said, well, you guys, Active Directory, already do this. Why don't you do identity for me? And then they were like this uh, extranet, a word that I'm sure a lot of people haven't heard in a long time, uh, which were like company one, company two, one is a supplier, one is like a warehouse manager. They need to be really close to each other. And so somehow they need to bridge this gap of uh, untrusted network between them without doing uh, unholy stuff like shadow accounts and stuff like that. So those were interesting scenarios, but they weren't uh, industry changing scenarios. But the cloud was the moment in which uh, people started taking their own stuff and deploy it in places that can be reached only through untrusted networks. And the moment in which software, so much software started being available as a service, as opposed to something that you can place in your perimeter, suddenly people had to pay attention. They had no other choice, but find a way of breaching this gap. From like a good engineering practice, it became either you find a solution for this or you don't get the job done. And I think that's what made the identity standards so widely successful. 
like uh, Samuel for crossing, like for doing a cross domain, single senyon was a, like a big hit, but, which doesn't mean it didn't require work. It required a lot of work from a lot of people, but the business case was very strong. The need for solving these problems in which you cross those boundaries uh, in a way which is vendor independent was uh, very important. And so that uh, gave, uh, I'd say, an infinite amount of fuel in all the activities which uh, led to basically standardizing on some, a handful of protocols. Some of them were designed, like some, some of them were pretty organic, like off, grew out of uh, organic grassroots needs of uh, people having uh, multiple resources scattered across multiple owners. Uh, multiple like service providers and uh, the desire to integrate those in uh, as people had uh, their life online more and more sophisticated. And, uh, and then this thing uh, following the opposite route and coming back to uh, the enterprise and business scenarios. And then uh, uh, organic abuses of off for using off or sign in turned into official things like OpenID Connect. And today, I have to say that uh, we are finally at the point in which uh, those standards are ubiquitously used across the board. Of course, you have pockets and uh, that things uh, are not uh, problem-free, like uh, you, I'm sure you heard about controversies, about the use of the JOT format, uh, but the fact is uh, we have like the largest SaaS providers on the planet the largest identity providers on the planet. They all support some of, most of them support OpenID. And at this point, now I'm finally able to answer your original question. At this point, in theory, a developer, which is not trying to do something special that uh, diverges significantly from the canonical scenarios out there, shouldn't have to be an expert in identity. Let's say that we have SDKs, we had them for years, that can uh, orchestrate the dance of those protocols without uh, the developer knowing the details of that. And we have services which support those flows, and it's, uh, both primary services, as in raw credentials, identity providers, your directories, and intermediary services, which put themselves in the middle and help you with details, as in, do you want to add MFA, do you want to manage consent, you want to add an authorization layer, you want to accept more than one identity provider, all of those things are standardized. And allegedly, the people that make choices should know enough of this space to make uh, architectural choices, as in, uh, should I model this application as a confidential client or as a public client if I'm using off? But the thing is, a lot of those associations are actually done automatically, like uh, here I have this little prop. This is like a little dice game in which I have one dice that, uh, one die that represents the application type, like desktop application, uh, long running process on the service, and the other die as on the faces, the off uh, flows. You just throw them, and there is a simple table that tells you whether the combination you have is the correct one. So in theory, those decisions are already taken by the SDK that you pick up. The thing that makes this more difficult is that we are partly responsible, like the identity people like to talk at the protocol level. 
And so developers, when they find a literature things, they find it at that granularity. And so that leads them to reason at that level, even if that wouldn't be necessary. And the other is, uh, I think that uh, our big missed opportunity today is that we don't have uh, very solid uh, profiles that say, okay, hmm. OpenID Connect have at least four different ways of signing you in uh, using uh, like four different grants. Let's just say that for web apps that uh, run on redirect driven by server-side stuff, we pick grant one and we all use it. And then at that point, you don't need to worry about, okay, is this provider supporting this or supporting that? Is this grant requiring me only by client ID or do I need also to provision a secret? Um, if we have a profiles at this level, then we could sink down this thing truly so that the developer does the checkbox. Those checkboxes exist across the industry, but they typically work only within subsets. Like if I am in the Microsoft subset, which I know will use a certain default, then I can actually use a checkbox. But as soon as you go outside of that, then there is uh, some uh, um, confusion. And there are a number of efforts in the industry to try to bring these under control. Like for example, FastFed is a working group under OpenID, which tries to create a profile to streamline the creation of a federation between two entities. And so it's making good progress, but we are not there yet. So I think that, uh, again, my short answer finally is developers, unless they are meta identity developers, like people developing SDKs for identity or services for identity, if they are using identity, they shouldn't have to be experts in the protocol. They might benefit from knowledge of some terminology so that they can make inform the choices, but ultimately the best practices should all be enshrined in SDKs, libraries, and services. We are halfway there. There are lots of really good SDKs which are open source in every platform you can think of, uh, but we are not fully there yet because we lack uh, profiling. And also because, of course, the grind never stops. And so now that we established those protocols, there are new scenarios and new protocols that are clamoring to come up. And so they are also getting some of the calories that uh, instead of spending it in doing profiles, we are spending them in exploring uh, those innovations. <sighs> Sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> well, the, I, I appreciate the uh, the perspectives. And I think one of the things that you, you, the blurring of responsibilities that you talked about at the beginning of your answer, it, it, it makes me think in some ways that identity is almost like the original DevOps problem where there's there's you're you're knowing enough about development, but you're also you're also a system operator, you're also enshrining policy by choosing these protocols. And I think that you you really hit the nail on the head with the with the the profile issue. We have maybe necessary profiles, but not sufficient profiles is one way to think about it. Um and, and giving developers in some cases enough enough latitude that they can do some interesting things, but they could also paint themselves into a corner rather quickly if they are picking the wrong one. Uh, it just seems, it seems like there's still work to do. And I'm curious if you think, if you, if you, and, a, and it's probably a mix of all of these three, but the opportunities at the protocol level versus at the, let's call it the first mile client level versus the last mile level. Like, where do you, 
where do you see the most interesting, I guess, problems and opportunities in, for developers in the, in the, you know, in the near term? Um, one thing that you said uh, made me uh, remember that there is a very important distinction that I believe we need to caveat everything with, which is uh, although the tools and the low-level protocols we use are the same, there is a very significant difference between the workforce scenarios and the customer facing scenarios. Because uh, in the workforce scenario, we have a lot of uh, formula-like interactions. Like we have uh, things that traditionally we do. Employees coming on board, employees being provisioned for their email, uh, employees accessing a, a system of documents with uh, different privileges. All of those things uh, are pretty fixed somewhat. And the people that attended to it, the original DevOps, as uh, uh, you call them out, are more on the ops than on the dev. Let's say that uh, they expect to have a booklet that says exactly how things will work. Their goal is uh, risk management and containment rather Operational than. Operational efficiency, uh, yeah. Yeah, rather than, uh, I would say, expressive power. Whereas if you go on the um, customer facing things, then things suddenly are different. Let's say that the users of an airline are different from uh, users of the uh, hotel chain, which are even more different than users from a streaming service, which are very different from users of the um, ride sharing. Or like a, you can think of uh, like a, so many different ways of uh, being yourself online, depending on the service that you're doing. And that is the part where the um, standardization becomes a bit more complicated. Like in theory, we can still have this base and say, okay, here there's the identity layer, that's what happens, and then build your differences on top of it. But while we are still in this uncertain place, people tend to inject some of the logic intermixed with uh, the identity layer. Sometimes because it's very convenient. Like imagine uh, you are accessing a system, and this system needs to check whether you signed an NDA or not. It's very convenient to put it in the authentication pipeline because uh, now this check will be present no matter the flavor of the app you're using. You might have your web app, you might have your mobile app, you might have your uh, smart TV app. And if this is in the identity pipeline, then you get this capability for free everywhere. But that also means that the layering gets more complicated. But anyway, I think that if you go on the workforce side of the house, the best opportunity you have is in the admin tools. And it's nothing new under the sun. Like, uh, like the MMC consoles in Windows NT uh, did everything for your local domain. Now you can think of uh, way more powerful controls that uh, allow you to manage a way more heterogeneous zoo or different animals, like the SAS app, the local app, uh, all of that stuff. But and the place where you have the most power, like the most power to help, is in those uh, um, admin consoles and possibly into plugins if you manage. Because uh, given that you can't control the breadth of all the apps and how the apps are developed, then somehow you need to provide something post-fact that helps the administrator to do this. On the developer side, I think that uh, the opportunities are definitely in the SDKs. Like people shouldn't reinvent the wheel. No one should have to write a pixie implementation. 
Pixie <laughs> yeah. is a low-level trick for protecting authorization calls in transit. It truly is a low-level trick. And yet I hear developers uh, saying the word Pixie all the time, which to me is uh, akin to someone saying, uh, oh yeah, the exponential backoff of TCP IP. The what? Like uh, most people have no idea that there are packets uh, that are being exchanged in TCP IP and that when you miss one delivery, you will try again, but not all the time, you'll have this backoff thing. It's a detail which is not actionable for people. So in theory, Pixie yeah, for me- on, on, that one, on that one, I think it's always funny that people will immediately say, if you want to write your own cryptography, everybody will dive immediately in front of the bus to stop you, for, and rightly so, from writing your own cryptography. Like, don't, don't think that you're smarter than all of these people who've been working on this for their whole careers. Just stop and use the public, you know, the available AES or what, what have you. However, in the case of identity, every single day somebody wakes up and goes into work and says, I'm going to write my own identity layer. And I, I never understand why why uh that you know they think they can get all of those decisions right you you could even make the case that with the protocol flows in terms of how pervasive identity is it, it might actually be harder well the thing is uh, you get such a uh, heterogeneous state like i will not name names but uh i recently had lunch it was at the identiverse endeavor i had lunch with this veteran of identity like a really uh, important figure who's a friend and who's like incredibly competent in this area. And he, we got to the argument of the case and he was saying, well, when you use OpenID, you OpenID connect, you don't need SDKs. And basically he was making the point that when you do a flow from the, um, from a confidential client and you get an ID token directly by hitting the token endpoint, which is like a direct line, you don't need to check signatures. And so all the checks that you are doing on the token are easy. And so you don't need an SDK. You can just do it yourself, which is, uh, in my opinion, extremely dangerous because like, uh, it's true that the checks are not, uh, to say, uh, crazy checks, but they are always the same. Uh, they can be like very countless opportunities to get this wrong. Uh, so to me, like uh, telling people, sure, go read the spec and then just go from spec to code without using uh, any intermediate library, it to me is like just not the right way to go through this. Yeah, say that it's, it's like saying, you know, chess is an easy game. You just move your pieces down the board and you take the other person's king. It's, so, and that's... Yes, it's it's very easy if you describe it that way. But it, it, and if you're the person in Denver who you're speaking of, um, you probably can figure out what 17 moves you need to make in what order and how do you do when the board's moving against you. But you know somehow it is pretty hard to win chess games against good players, uh, e even though the end is quite simple to understand. You are like once again, I absolutely love your metaphor, and I think that here there is a bit of a course of knowledge that you are hinting at. Like we live immersed in these all the time, which is why I love to go not only to Identiverse, but also to conferences like the Gartner IIM, in which you go and you talk to technology managers that are, have a vested interest in making the right move and making the right choices, but they simply don't have an appreciation of these low level details. And so that forces you to up level your thinking and saying, okay, those things are details. and I cannot expect 
that people that will make decisions in this context to have that kind of discernment. Even the people that they were used to, now they are busy. They are doing lots of other things. So you can't ask people to operate at that level. So for sure, I think that the, uh, the people that come from uh, SAML, from WS Trust, uh, for which uh, this stuff was uh, insanely complicated. If you look at OpenID, yeah, any developer that understands HTTP understands this thing. But again, I, I'm going to steal your uh, uh, analogy of uh, the rules of chess are easy. Being a, a like playing chess professionally isn't. So I don't think that we should ask everyone to become uh, experts because uh, there is no point. Um, and the, the, so there is the laboratory part. The other part where I am a very strong believer is uh, in tooling. Let's say that uh, typically developers, uh, when they build their solutions and their applications, have their toolset. They use uh, already stuff. Like, for example, if you have a if you are on React, React has a lot of command line uh, uh, integrations in which you can uh, use a templating engine and uh, basically say what is the shape of the app that you want, and these will generate stuff out. Or like Eclipse, uh, Visual Studio Code, all these environments give accelerators for the developers. So those environments and web portals, all of these uh, ensemble, I, Already today, we try, different vendors try to have a developer through this big decision tree in which you land on this thing, you say, okay, you want to do an app, which flavor of app are you doing? Is it a web app or is it a mobile app or is it a common line app? And as you click through this thing, we do this branching and we do our best to configure things so that you don't need to be worried about low level stuff. Unfortunately, there are situations in which uh, it's just very hard for us to make uh, decisions on your behalf. Like, for example, if you are building a single page app, it's a special case of a web app in which JavaScript plays an important role. But are you only calling your backend? So you have a JavaScript on your page and the APIs are only in the same domain from where you got HTML? Or do you need to call stuff that is also elsewhere. Like, do you need to call APIs from ours? And if you do, do you have a component on the backend to which you can delegate some of this functionality? Like, uh, for example, acquiring tokens so that uh, this very critical logic of uh, token acquisition can be done on the service, which is more secure than a browser where anything goes. Or okay, you need to do everything browser side. Or can you do both? acquiring the token and proxy calling the APIs from the backend, which is not always the case, because uh, if you are in multiple geographies, you might not be able to do that. So all of those complications make a big difference in uh, the kind of uh, flow that you will use. Um, but there is no very easy way of asking the developer what they want to do. They might not know it themselves. So this is one of those areas where um, it gets harder. But before that, like if you are doing a choice between a mobile app or a web app, the choice between uh, like of what you use from a mobile app is very clear. And uh, for most of the platforms, there are already SDKs that expose primitives at the app level, not at the protocol level. Like you might have an API that says sign in, and this API that says sign in actually calls a system browser 
and uh, hits uh, the authorization endpoint that it found by metadata. So you as the developer just have to configure this SDK by saying, uh, this is the URL of the service from where I'm getting authentication. That's it. You don't need to worry more about it. So it's a trench war. Like uh, whenever we have a, a, a tactical opportunity to help, we do it. It would be good if we'd be more consistent across the board. But ultimately, they might, you know developers, like some developers actually refuse the, uh, the black box and say, I want to know what's there, which to me, that's where open source come into play. Like you can have a, a SDK that exposes a very high level API signing in or get access token. And if I want to know what's going on, I should be able to just get the source, maybe even the symbol, so the debugger can help me. And I should be able to see all the internal calls, which should be layered so that as I move to the next level in the stack, I should see protocol APIs so that if I'm curious, I can go in the code and understand. But if I'm not curious, I should not be blocked because I haven't looked inside this thing. So once again, super long answer. I think that for developers, it's a mix of runtime SDKs, both for acquiring and caching the tokens and for validating tokens, depending on the part of the architecture that you're working on, and really good management tools for creating and configuring applications. And, and I like that those both of those answers are one of the main the reasons why I was excited to have you uh, as a guest because I, I I almost visualize a Venn diagram in your brain as you're going through one of the strengths I see in your work is going through all of the different perspectives um, and switching from the developer perspective, which I think is is still super important to where we need to get to next, but the looking at it from a from a you know a user perspective and i think probably not the workforce user as much uh for this particular question but when we when these protocols started rolling out one of the big user value propositions was and still is single sign on um and i think that's that's been achieved to to i think the degree maybe we could have reasonably expected uh versus some of the more larger claims that people thought would happen, which would be more portable identity um, and the ability for, you know, user, what some people call user-centric identity and things like this, those use cases, I don't think we've quite got there yet. Uh, what what do you think the user, uh, the non-workforce user, you know, just an, a, an internet user, an e-commerce user, what do you think they get out of all of these identity protocols and what could they reasonably expect to get over increased adoption and of these over the next you know two to three years that part is uh, also complicated let's say that the availability of those protocols uh, truly unlocked so much of what the web can do today like the ability of uh, giving granting delegated access across uh, websites has been incredibly powerful and then by extension the fact that uh, people that frequently used one particular app could use that app to sign in in other uh, apps create like these uh, tightly uh, like very dense ecosystem in which uh, you can reasonably expect in almost every uh, app to have a sign in with 
And it's going to be Twitter, it's going to be Apple, it's going to be Google, it's going to be Facebook, uh, and so on and so forth. Now, and, that, and even even stepping off of the web, right? Like in into the real into the real world, the physical world, with uh, with COVID, you see a lot of uh, you know you want to go to this concert, you want to go to this conference, you have to register, you have to get a clear ID, or you have to get an ID from someplace else, and that's going to be the proof that you're going to show. Um, and so there's some other really interesting rewiring of protocols that, to me, start to get at the more portable identity. It's still sort of a, a claim at a time for an event here or there, but I, I, I think we're starting to see some of that. I don't know if you're seeing more portability as part of this. Absolutely. So what's happening is that the, the scenarios that you described are uh, new scenarios. Let's say that uh, when we sign in, typically we are doing so because we want to start a session of sort or because we are returning user and we want to retrieve whatever context we had in there. Uh, and so all of us things typically have an element of like uh, recognition rather than uh, I am uh, trying and I'm trying to go past the bump, like for example, the mm -hmm. here a clear idea, I am clear. And so the system for signing in has problems of its own, like uh, the fact that uh, social signing had its time, but now it's starting to contract a bit because uh, uh, between the fact that the, the service providers realized that they wanted more direct relationship with users, and instead when they outsource these to a social provider, now they are at the whims of that social provider, like social provider might decide, well, this user uh, did something against my policy, so I'm gonna suspend that account. And now that user can no longer access all the other things that rely on that. Or like uh, analytics, people don't like to talk about it, but uh, when you sign in with Google, you are giving them a whole load of things about the user that instead, if you handle sign in yourself, you might be able to get. Now, the user might not be okay with either, saying I don't want to be tracked, but here between the service provider and the potential identity provider, there's always this bit of tension as in, uh, I want to gather data, I want to how to retrieve this thing. And also some uh, like uh, in more general, the societal point of view, there is this thing about uh, the fact that so much of a consumer identity focused on uh, a handful of providers. This was something that we tried, I'd say, naively to prevent back in the card space days, in which we said, well, we don't want the emergence of uh, artificially large identity providers, but then Darwinian pressure produced exactly that. But now we are at a point in which uh, those providers know so much that people are getting scared about that. And here also I have to mention that uh, it's not just about signing. So much of the um, privacy violations occur with things like uh, trackers in the browser observing your behavior, whether you are signed in or not. Or you might use a very secure privacy-preserving sign-in mechanism, but then as you're using the service, you might buy something and uh, give your address and your legal name or whatever you're doing. You might be disclosing things that make it very easy to collate your information across the board. So the traditional uh, way of doing identity or just navigating the web has intrinsic issues, privacy issues, and then there are things that uh, are not part of these, 
but that are we always had in a form or another. Like uh, the moment in which you needed to prove something uh, that goes beyond just the ability to reclaim the same user that you signed up yesterday, but appeal to an external authority, like uh, you needed to upload a, um, a scan of your driving license, or they needed to know it's really you, so you need to turn on the webcam and show your face together with the driving license. Those things exist and we are very inconvenient. COVID created the clear need to make them convenient. Because as soon as you need to do those at scale, like big events, you have tens of thousands of people to check. You can't afford to have an inefficient system. Then the evolutionary pressure to have uh, other ways of uh, proving your identity and ways which are less directly tied to the provider. But something that, to use your words, is more portable. As in, I have it in my wallet. And now I choose when and how to disclose it. It's clearly a new need. Uh, I want to emphasize new need because uh, this does not necessarily substitute the things that we are already doing. Like we might stop to use some of those centralized uh, fungible authentication services, but uh, those very public credentials are not necessarily the thing that we will use instead. But those new things are really, really useful for situations in which you absolutely need to be privacy preserving at the sign-in phase, or when you need to prove something from an authority out of those existing, let's call them federations. You want to be able to have flexibility to disclose those things uh, without the identity provider knowing when and with whom you are disclosing, and with a wide range of uh, providers. That's a great vision, and a lot of people are working on it. The thing that I'm not crazy about of this vision is twofold. One is that people are selling it very hard, and they aren't looking at complications. Like when you have your clear thing and you want to show it to people, the people that see this thing needs to know how to check the signature of whatever is being shown in there. So not just your signature as the wallet holder, but the authority. Uh, to me, the paradigmatic example is uh, a few months ago, I was in a bar in Bellevue with colleagues from Belgium and France. And uh, I showed my driving license from the Washington state and I was given my cognac. And instead, my two friends had to go back to the hotel to retrieve their passport because their driving license, which is perfectly valid in all the EU countries, here is uh, useless plastic. So. Move all of these in internet scale and think of a service that now needs to accept credentials. In the federation world, we solved this problem by exchanging metadata and all of that. Sure, we are constrained, like uh, everything needs to be part of this uh, thing, but in, uh, in the case in which you just can present your credentials, you need to find a way of teaching to the verifiers which things are verifiable, uh, like which things they should trust. And it's non-trivial. Again, it's one of those uh, chess things in which uh, the theory is sure I can present these uh, to these uh, credentials to anyone. But in fact, today, I can issue you an access token and uh, put there a bogus uh, audience. Uh, audience can be everyone. 
it's not like the service side that needs to check it. It's that we normally check it because it's a security measure. And in this new world, we are relaxing this uh, new security measure, but the, um, we are not really giving a lot of guidance yet on what to do instead. And you cannot afford not to do anything. Otherwise, you'll have people with uh, wallets full of stuff that can be used. Uh, like my nightmare scenario is uh, you have your phone with one wallet for each provider, as opposed to a wallet with multiple providers. And the, that credential is tightly, tightly tight, like, like closely tight to a specific set of resources, which would recreate what we already have today, which is already very tight, and not live up to the potential of this stuff. So I'm a bit mad at the people that talk about this because they sell it uh, and they don't highlight the difficulties. And to me, real adoption means, yes, we believe in this vision. Those are the difficult things that uh, you need to figure out. Let's figure them out together. If you hide the difficult things, that means that you are selling for some other reason. And I don't want to get into what those reasons might be. And the other reason for which I'm not crazy about this is that people ties the verifiable credentials to the decentralized world. And I think that decentralized world is a different set of problems and solutions, and sometimes solutions in search of a problem that uh, are not necessarily part of this. Let's say that uh, if I'm uh, using a mobile driving license, that mobile driving license derives all its power from the issuing of it. I might have some mechanism for protecting my use and my wallet so that it's tied to my own key. But ultimately, the thing that the verifier wants is to believe what the authority says about me. And so whether my key comes from a ledger or comes from somewhere else, it doesn't make much of a difference. So to me, there are scenarios in which both decentralized and verifiable credential together make sense. But it's not a given. There are perfectly valid scenarios, I dare say the most obvious one nowadays, where I can use verifiable credentials approach. I eventually, once we'll have uh, solved the other problems, without having to see a blockchain, not even with binoculars. <laughs> so I'm a big believer in the VC uh, view, but it's additive. It doesn't substitute what we do. It's more power for us, for more scenarios. And uh, um, I think that there are a lot of things to figure out and we should get serious about uh, figuring this out as industry rather than selling just the idea because it's a nice uh, bad time story that, oh, you have control of your identity. And we should bring in uh, decentralized only when it's really useful and not as a tax that we need to pay whenever we talk about VC. And I think the real engineering always starts with uh, uh, really understanding and then embracing the constraints that you have, right? So if, if we're building a rocket ship to the moon, uh, weight of cargo is going to be a massive constraint. And it doesn't do any good to say, you can go to the moon and, oh, by the way, you can have a big screen TV while you're up there. If there's no way, the rocket will never get out, will never make it. So that you haven't really solved the problem. I um I, I really appreciate that perspective. Looking to the th the third constituent of these of these protocols, and uh, there's more than three, but we we only have time for three perspectives today. Um, but this is the one I spend most of my time on, which is the the 
cybersecurity uh, perspective. And I think uh, was 10 years ago now, maybe we were starting to talk about identity as the perimeter. It used to be you're inside the firewall, you're good, you're outside the firewall, you're bad. And then one day everybody woke up and said, geez, people are going across the firewall and are they all good? Are they all bad? How do we know? Oh, we have to do all of the checks that you just talked about to verify the credentials and do the authorization mapping. So I think it's been apparent for a while now that identity is, is really a perimeter that the security industry, frankly, I think is still catching up to. Um, you brought a, a, a prop, so I'm gonna just grab one here. Um, so, you know, what, what happens, you know, when, when bugs, when uh, bugs come in, uh, right, to the system? What happens when malicious actors deliberately try to take advantage of it? I think one reasonable security concern that we could, we could put on the, you know, less than desired after effect of the success of rolling out identity protocols is because it, we have stitched together so many different systems, if or when an attacker is successful to take over an account or take over uh, a user session, the blast radius in, has also increased. But in the same sense that single sign-on uh, empowers a user, uh, single sign-on when that account has been taken over also means that instead of I got your session to maybe one account, I got your session to an account that now spans 25 systems. And so like what what threats do you see in terms of you know knock-on effects that maybe you know that that have arisen out of the success of of rolling out these protocols you know obviously there's a lot of pressure on the front end through bot bots trying to get into systems and phishing attacks trying to get into systems and granted 99.9% .9 of the time they're not successful, but when you can try them billions of times, you know, 0.01% is actually just fine. Um, you know, if the cost of the attacker isn't isn't much. What what are the kinds of threats do you see? And I guess maybe maybe using our sort of simple model of you know, first mile, last mile, and protocol level, do you see any of those as particularly vulnerable or particularly pernicious, nasty attacks in, in those areas? Yeah, like here, I have to make a little plug. Uh, in uh, just a couple of weeks, which is horrible because I'm not done with my deck yet, I will make a, a presentation at the, the Authenticate Conference in uh, Seattle, which is uh, hosted by the FIDO Alliance, about uh, uh, attacks and specifically attacks in the CIM space. And you're absolutely right that uh, it's a double-edged sword, which like uh, the more we expand accessibility and convenience for users, the more people that manage to breach defenses will have access to a variety of resources. Um, I think that one of the biggest issues we have in here is that the, there is a, like the, the protocols, as in the protocols that I'm used to work with, are more concerned about securely moving stuff from A to B uh, within the boundaries of that relationship. And uh, um, in themselves, they tend to consider as a separate concern things like the mechanics of authentication. Like uh, OpenID works just as well, whether you're using username, uh, password, and security questions, yeah. and uh, very uh, good uh, non-fishable uh, security keys using roaming authenticators and web buffer. But OpenID specifically says, uh, 
And, and SAML did the same. I think the last time I checked, SAML, you could generate an assertion out of like 29 different authentication types or something in it. So it yeah. sort of, it brought to mind to me, uh, Charles de Gaulle, which uh, said, you know, no one should try to unify a nation that has uh, two, out of the clear blue sky where they have 275 different kinds of cheese. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like those are definitely um, important factors, but I think that uh, it's, uh, uh, it's okay. This is uh, just part of the layering. If you wouldn't have this kind of layering, you wouldn't end up with uh, Corb. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. Oh, yeah. yes. For most of your listeners, which probably don't have as much white as I have in my now invisible beard, mm -hmm. um, Corba was uh, one thing that uh, Java, the Java community put together for doing distributed computing. And it was like uh, the Simaridion. It was like a huge book. <laughs> and uh, it regulated absolutely everything, down to like the binary stuff in the memory, how you, like, today, we just can't do this. We need to have separation of concerns and open it off, do their best to protect the part that they are responsible for. But that thing is just the edge between the nodes in the graph. And so what you do in the nodes is of paramount importance. And so the fact that we still use a lot of fishable uh, credentials is what enables some of these very large scale attacks, which would not have been possible while the perimeter was still your building and the ability of someone to sit on front of your workstation in your local network. Uh, now you can access stuff from remote and you have an infinite time. Like uh, we have one, uh, one of the case studies that I will present at the session is a customer that uh, had to withstand an attack for two months. For two months, they got pounded continuously for this thing. And if you'd use non-fishable credentials, those attacks would not, would be completely pointless. Uh, but like uh, the combination of everything is on the public network, we can do stuff at scale, and we are using fishable stuff is what enables some of those things. And then there is uh, all the usual uh, best practices. Like uh, you could have everything absolutely bottomed up and then a random developer checks in in AWS key in your GitHub. And luckily we have a, a growing sophistication in the tooling that will detect that you're doing this and stop you from doing it. But humans have a way of sticking the fork in the, uh, in the power plug. And so that still happens. I think that uh, the main lines of defense, like starting from the resource and coming back up are, you need, at this point, you truly need something like an, an anomaly detector, like something that uh, observes your requests and makes a determination on whether those are legitimate requests or they have a chance of being part of an attempt to compromise. And today, at this point, anyone who operates uh, even at like a bit of scale on the internet needs to do this. The good news is pretty much every service out there offers these in some form or another, so it's easy to get. And you get these both from like your identity providers or from like your edge, you might be using a service for hosting your stuff, your CDN, a lot of this stuff happens behind the scenes. 
in transit. Go ahead. And I think, and I think it gives you a, a kind of like embracing constraints does when you're thinking about use cases. Um, I think it's a chance. I, I've seen you know a lot of the work out there now on step up authentication standards, which to me, I, I think is a really refreshing. Um, step forward for the industry it's it's almost like the the crumple zone on the car instead of making something harder you just there's a step up to me is a crumple zone um and we actually get safer by putting some some softness in the system and em embracing the uncertainty instead of like in your corba example thinking that we can ratchet down the exact right setting for every possible scenario at some point the right answer is you know what you need to <laughs> You need to talk to somebody. You need to to go to a person, a chatbot, a something, and prove something through step up. I, I think that's a fantastic show of maturity for the industry, and I'm I'm really glad to see that as a as something that anomaly detectors or behavioral monitoring or what have you can trigger uh, that makes stronger systems. Once again, you make an absolutely excellent point. One of the fundamental differences that uh, often security professionals have a hard time digesting, but it's unfortunately there, is that uh, between the user acceptance levels, the tolerance you can expect from an employee that uh, signs a contract and operates within a particular context, to access tools uh, designed to make whatever is the thing that gets them their salary twice a month, versus a potential customer that is uh, trying to use your service and uh, is from complexity for security reasons. And if enough people decide that that complexity is enough to abandon whatever they were doing, that is a existential threat for the service provider. Like uh, this thing is literally whether they can survive and uh, keep making the money that uh, allows them to do favorable quarterly report, or if they have to close shop and go home. And so the adaptive things that you hinted at, in which uh, you try to inject a higher level of uh, engagement for authentication, only when strictly necessary, is uh, what allows some of these services to operate. Because uh, if you just have a blanket uh, 2FA, uh, maybe you wouldn't uh, have as many users as you need to have to be profitable. And if you wouldn't do anything, eventually you get breached in a way that might mean the end of your run in business. So adaptive MFA is one of those beautiful things of modern life that can actually make some of those businesses viable. Now, one of the things that uh, I like to throw here and as a complication is uh, it's going to be an arms race. A lot of those uh, things rely on uh, AI, machine learning, getting a lot of signals and uh, digesting it, finding weak features that as humans we might not find, aggregating across multiple talents and coming up with saying, OK, I just discovered another attack which is happening because I've seen this pattern. So let me stop all requests of this kind. But these, these inputs can also be used by trackers to fingerprint browsers and then start tracking users across the board. So user agents, browsers, are introducing measures that will make these more difficult, which means 
the trackers will have a harder time fingerprinting you. But it also means that your algorithm for deciding whether you should throw MFA or not will have a much harder time to understand what's going on and whether you should do it or not. Now, we are always evolving, and so maybe we'll switch to different signals. But the point is, uh, this is one car that the dog will not chase. Let's say that uh, we will have to keep running after it and be flexible enough to keep responding to the environment. And this is one of the reasons, once again, for which doing identity on your own is very hard. Because if you were to build your system, of course, you'd be blind to all of this stuff because your job is something else. Like if you are a pharmaceutical company, your calories are spent folding molecules. If you spend them tracking what's the latest in browser land in terms of what you can use for anomaly detection or not, you might not fold the proteins as fast as your competitor. Also, you have no access to anyone but your own users. And the trend might originate in a different geography, in a completely different industry. And so you might just be unable to detect it. So I don't want to sound like uh, I'm selling <laughs> anything, <laughs> but uh, I think that this is one of the reasons for which uh, some uh, centralization has so much uh, value because uh, you can rely on uh, harnessing the wisdom of the crowds and uh, use the lessons learned elsewhere to protect your own business before, instead of uh, being the one that generates that intelligence for others, like being the bad uh, example. But anyway, I just want to do the entire three things. For the transition, for the, like we said, last mile, yeah. the big chasm between A and B, I think that the best trick there is to stick to protocols better, stick to best practices, like there are protocols and then there are ancillary specifications that govern all the best practices that apply to a particular protocol. Those are transition documents because eventually those practices get integrated. Practical example, off to the top as a security best practices, and now there is off to the one, which is basically off to the top plus the security best practices integrated in there. So it's a good practice whenever you go on the wire to make sure that whatever tools you are using will use the right security practices. And then on the first mile, again, it's good hygiene for devices. So from the MDM, when you can afford it to doing as much uh, due diligence as you can do to verify the, um, the health of the device, using the right tools in terms of uh, SDKs, libraries, and similar. And most important of all, trying to use uh, factors that are non-fishable. Like, uh, I'm sure you heard of the buzz about passkeys. If your starting point is passwords, passkeys are going to be an enormous step forward. So I would uh, advocate people playing with them as soon as they have a chance. If you are starting for platform authenticators, they might be a bit of a step down. So there is a need for a bit more uh, care in the adoption. But in general, the industry is definitely moving in a good direction in that respect. Well, Vittorio, I really appreciate your time today and enjoyed your perspectives across uh, across so many different uh, lenses of identity. It's it's one of the most interesting parts of technology to me because it touches almost everything. 
from from the you know the user's fingertips or fingerprints uh, all the way back to the uh, you know the farthest back end database. I, I certainly uh, would never want to stop anyone from being uh, spending their time to be identity experts. But like in that in that last discussion, you know, if you're a pharmaceutical company, I guess I as a consumer would really like those people to spend their 60, 70, 80 hours a week uh, working on molecules to fight cancer and COVID and things like that. And uh, I wouldn't stand in anyone's way to learn the ins and outs of identity protocols, but the less they're spending that time on that, the better. Uh, really appreciate it. I hope I hope we can talk again sometime, maybe after you've done your, uh, your presentation in Seattle on security threats. Uh, that's a particular interest of mine. And, and grazie ragazzi for your time today, uh, Vittorio. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's been a uh, two decades at this point, so it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Mm -hmm.